it's appropriate that we're honoring John and Trisha today because we're talking about humility today. Um, that's something that is just characterized in them. And I love how C.S. Lewis described humility. I pull this out at least once a year. If you're at Harbor for more than a year, you're going to hear this multiple times. Look at what C.S. Lewis said. He said, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He'll not be the sort of person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's John and Trisha, and praise God, that is so many of the leaders here at this church. We have such an awesome team of leaders and servants. They don't work hard to be humble. They just are. They don't keep telling you that they're nobody. They just go about the business of glorifying somebody, King Jesus. And so they don't try to be weak. They, they try to depend on his strength every day. That's what you see just characterized through so many of the people, the leaders and the, the ministers here at Harbor Church. And it's also a reflection of Jesus, who we are celebrating in a couple weeks. Jesus is a, a radiant source of humility. And as we prepare for the arrival of Jesus during the season of Advent, we're looking at different characters in the Old Testament who just gave us a glimpse of what we're going to catch in Jesus. And so today, as we think about this kind of radiant humility, the strength that comes from that kind of humility is really a, a perfect place for us to go. And that's to the life of King David. So if you got your Bible, open to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel 5. We had thought about preaching through 1 and 2 Samuel at some point, and then we realized that would take about four years. And so over the next while, we're going to pick little places in 1 and 2 Samuel to pluck little things out of. And this is such a great story. This right here in 2 Samuel 5, leading up to it is the story of how David became King David. Because if you remember your Old Testament history, you remember that David wasn't the first king of Israel, it was King Saul. And Saul did not follow in the ways of the Lord. He wanted to do his own thing. And so God removed his anointing from Saul and put his blessing onto this little runt of a kid named David. And there were a lot of people in Israel who really weren't happy about that. Because a lot of people in Israel who were connected to King Saul were making a lot of money off of King Saul, off of the taxes that he raised, the lands that, that he uh, overruled. And, and so if the, the leadership of Israel transfers from Saul to David, these people are going to lose their connections. They're going to lose their power. They're going to lose their income stream. And so a civil war breaks out in Israel between the house of Saul and the house of David. Well, God's anointing is on David. And so eventually he wins the war. And so everything seems great. It's all good. But here's the thing. During that civil war, Israel's enemy next door, the Philistines, they've been watching this war play out, making popcorn and just watching the show. They love this. They are enjoying the sight of Israel destroying itself. Now that the war is over and Israel is united, the Philistines feel threatened. So they launch a surprise attack to try and assassinate the new king. That's where we pick up the story here in 2 Samuel 5. Look at verse 17. That's where we're going to pick it up. 2 Samuel 5, 17 says, 
When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they all went in search of David, but he heard about it and he went down to the stronghold. And so the Philistines came and spread out in Rephaim Valley. Okay, so the Philistines want to decapitate the government of Israel by assassinating David. They launch the surprise attack. They come to a place called Rephaim Valley. Literally what that means is Valley of the Giants. Remember Goliath? Apparently they went and found his cousins. And now they've brought them along to attack Israel. Well, David's getting a little nervous about that. So it says in verse 19, David inquired of the Lord, should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, attack for I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. You do the work, you trust me for the results. And so verse 20, David went to Baal-perazim and defeated them there. And he said, like a bursting flood, the Lord has burst out against my enemies before me. And therefore he named that place, the Lord bursts out. And if you notice that, four times in that verse, we heard about the Lord bursting out. God is bursting out like a flood against the people who want to burst apart his kingdom and his plan. So it says in verse 21, the Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. Yeah, these guys didn't even have time to grab the little gold statues that they worshiped. They chucked them and ran. And so David's riding high. Everything's all G in Israel, right? Well, no. Verse 22, the Philistines came up again, again, and they spread out in Rephaim Valley. Again. So apparently the giants are back. They went and they found Goliath's second cousins for this second attack. This is the sequel that nobody wanted. Like Space Jam 2. Nobody asked for a sequel to Space Jam. Nobody needed that. Like Transformers 7. Nobody needed a seventh installment of the Transformers, like every Marvel movie of the past five years. We just didn't need them, but they just keep coming, right? Like the Philistines. They just keep coming. And so if I was David, this is the point where I'd be like, yo, I I tap out. Because my personality, I can handle a problem, but when that problem comes back, or when you toss multiple problems at the same time at me, man, I'm done. I'm done. And I don't think I'm alone here. I think a lot of us can have an experience where just a few hiccups in a row will just shut us down. I think I'm not alone in that. Think about the last house project you did, okay? How did that go? You, maybe, maybe you wanted to paint a wall. You wanted to go from Tuscan melon to Nantucket gray, okay? So problem, you don't have paint. What are you gonna do? I'll go down to Home Depot. I'll pick up some paint. So you go, pick up some paint. You come back, you start painting the wall. But then halfway through the wall, you run out of paint. The problem's back. What are you going to do? You're like, I'll watch some college football and then I'll go run down to Home Depot. Now it's three years later. And your wall is still half Tuscan melon and half Nantucket gray, right? That's how we deal with multiple problems. Not well, not well. Especially when those problems are more significant, more meaningful. Maybe the problem is that your family just isn't praying together. You just never pray together. And so you're like, okay, honey, what I wanna do is family devotionals every morning at breakfast time. Wouldn't that be great? 
your wife is like, babe, that sounds awesome. Problem is, with all the kids and their school schedules, I'm not sure how that's gonna work out. One going here, one there, one that. I'm not sure. It might be kind of a, a logistical challenge. There's the second problem, logistics. So how do you respond to that? Forget it. We're never going to do family devotionals then. That's what you say. We don't do well with multiple problems. But what does David do? What does David do when problems keep coming and coming and coming? He goes back to the Lord. That's what he does. Look at verse 23. So David inquired of the Lord again, and he answered, Do not attack directly, but circle around behind them and come at them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, act decisively. Act decisively, for then the Lord will have gone out ahead of you to strike down the army of the Philistines. That's a really interesting thing God says. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, why would you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, because that's the army of the Lord who's come down. That's what that means. That's the Lord's army of angels that's coming down to do business with the Philistines. It's kind of like those monster movies where you don't see the monster. All you see is trees violently shaking, and you know there's something really bad going on underneath those trees. That's what God is doing here. David has sought the Lord, and so now the Lord is going to take down the Philistines. But, but then he says David needs to act decisively to finish the battle. So David can't just kick back. He's got to be ready to act. Because God is totally sovereign, but in his sovereignty, he has a place for our responsibility. You see that all through Scripture that idea. Look at what it says in Psalm 127. It says, unless unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. What does that mean? It doesn't mean God's going to build you a house without you working at all. It doesn't mean God's going to defend your city without you staying awake. God is going to provide everything, but it assumes you're still going to be working hard and taking responsibility. When some people read passages like that in the Bible, verses like that, they're like, all right, that sounds great. I'll just let the Lord build a house and I'm just go surf. I'll let the Lord defend the city and I'm uh, just watch some YouTube. That's what a lot of people come to the conclusion of. Some people use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to be lazy. But look at what John Calvin said. He understood the sovereignty of God better than anybody else in the last 2,000 years. And look at what he said. It is not the will of the Lord that we should be like blocks of wood, that we should keep our arms folded without doing anything, but that we should use all the talents and advantages which he has given us. God's sovereignty is what empowers you to take responsibility, to act decisively. So that's what David's gonna do. So look at what it says in verse 25. David did exactly what the Lord commanded him. Exactly what the Lord commanded him. And he struck down the Philistines all the way from Geba to Gezer. That didn't happen overnight. It took a while for the Lord to bring all of this victory to David. But God went ahead of David, and David took action. 
God takes initiative and then we respond and then God responds to our response. If this was completely up to us, if all of this was completely up to us, David would be acting a lot differently here. He'd be worried out of his mind. The Philistines are surrounding them. David would be pacing back and forth. He'd be strategizing, worrying, making contingency plans. He'd be barking out orders at people, and then when they don't follow his orders exactly right, he'd be barking some more. But that's not what David's doing here. He believes that everything is up to God, completely up to God. But he also believes that the things that we do really matter. God's sovereignty has a place for our responsibility. When you understand that, it's almost like a superpower. It really is. Understanding this truth gives you this kind of humble strength, this kind of calm urgency. You're peaceful and calm and content, but at the same time, you're going to be dynamic and urgent and decisive because that's the world, what the world needs. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about over the last four months, a lot. The Lahaina fires really started me thinking about these things more than I have. Because most of the people in Lahaina had less than five minutes warning before the fire was upon them. So that was a, a really powerful reminder to me. We don't know how much time we've got. We don't know. Look what it says in James 4. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. The, the fire hit the center of tourism for Maui and tourism makes up 80% of the economy of Maui, 80% of the profits. There were 13,000 people in Lahaina who had no reason to think they wouldn't do business and make a profit there for a year or for 20 years. People have been making a profit there for 200, for almost 1,000 years. We just assume that life is always going to go on the way it always has. But look at what James says. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you're like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We don't know how long we've got. And here's what's grabbed me over the, the past four months. We don't know how long our neighbors have got. We don't know how long our family, our friends have got. We don't know how long our coworkers and our classmates have got. We just don't know. And so the fire in Maui, it's awakened this, this urgency in me. And it's an urgency that I don't always have. And so over the past four months, I've had to ask myself, why is that? Why don't I feel this? all the time? Why don't I have an urgency about the people in the world who are suffering, about the people in the world who need Jesus? I think there's a few reasons for that. First is because of my theology. I truly and firmly believe that God is sovereign over every single thing in the universe. If there is one stray atom in the universe that is outside of God's control, we're doomed. God controls everything but sometimes I can allow that to lull me to sleep. If God's in control of everything and he wants something done, he'll do it. I'm tempted to kick back because of that. 
There's a way for him to do it. Also, I'm, I'm missional. I want to develop relationships with people, but a lot of times there's no urgency to those relationships. I just kind of form relationships and hope for the best. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I don't believe that statement, but a lot of times I live like I do. Only if necessary, use words. Also, I'm, I'm kind of island style a little bit. I want to maintain the aloha spirit and I'll make waves. Just, just keep things steady. And then I'm a peacemaker. That's what all the personality tests come back at me with. That's what they categorize me as. I'm the guy who says, can't we all just get along? That's me. And so I can do peaceful and calm and content pretty well, but sometimes I gotta be more like David. I gotta act decisively because that's what David was praised for throughout the rest of the Bible. That's what he was praised for in the New Testament. Look at what it says in Hebrews 11. When it's listing David along all the heroes of the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 says, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. David and the rest of those guys, they were beasts. They were dynamic and urgent and decisive and all because they were desperately dependent on God. David and the rest of those guys, they had this humble strength. So here's the question. How do we become like that? How do we build that kind of humble strength? How do we become humble without becoming pushovers? Well, I can see three things in David's example, three things in that story we just saw of how we can build humble strength. Here's number one. Depend on God and pray. Depend on God and pray. I mean, how many times did we hear David inquired of the Lord? David inquired of the Lord. You get the feeling that that's just something David did all the time? Yeah. If you read the Psalms, you see David inquiring of the Lord. You see David praying all the time, especially about little things. David feels a little lonely, and so he prays. David feels a little tired, and so he prays. David was always praying about the little things, and so then when the big things came, like Philistines surrounding you, the muscle memory was already built. David's like, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna inquire of the Lord. That's what I'm gonna do. He knows he is desperately dependent on God for everything, for everything. That's why Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread. Daily bread. Now, I know some of you are keto. You don't eat bread, I know. When you make a burger, you put it between two portobello mushrooms. All right, that's awesome. Love that for you. That's great. But for the rest of us who love bread, like Japanese white bread, isn't that the best? pretzel bun bread, fresh baked French bread. For the rest of us who would love to eat bread all day long, when's the last time you prayed for bread? What? Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread, but have you ever done that in your life once? 
even once. No, we've got other people we depend on for bread, right? We know there's some guy on the mainland who tills a field and plants a whole bunch of seeds and then he comes back later with a big combine and harvests the wheat and then somebody else drives it over to the flour mill. Then another guy runs the machine that turns the wheat into flour and then another guy drives the flour to the bakery. Then another guy mixes the flour with eggs and, and, and milk and puts it in the oven. And then another guy puts it onto a Matson container so it can come to us in Hawaii. Another guy drives it to the supermarket, puts it on the shelf so that you can pick it up, take it home, and make your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There's all of those guys that we depend on for our bread, but even so, Jesus says there's really only one person responsible for supplying bread, and that's God. So that's why he says you gotta pray for bread. You gotta be desperately dependent on God for bread and for everything else in life. So ask yourself this. Ask yourself this. There's something in my life that God wants me to depend on him for. What is it? There's something in my life that God wants me to pray more about. What is it? got to depend on the Lord like David. Seek the Lord like David. And then when God answers, and God always answers, we got to be ready to respond. That's number two. Respond to God and act. You got to act decisively like David. Got to act urgently. Because when God answers, he's going to be calling you to something. And God is patient but he's not gonna wait around for you forever. He's not. Look at what it says in Isaiah 49. This is what the Lord says. I will answer you in a time of favor. I'll help you in the day of salvation. So apparently there's a specified time of favor when God's gonna answer you. There's a specified day of salvation where God's gonna help you. It's, it's a day. I don't know if that's a 24-hour day or a four-year day in some situations. We don't know, but it's specified time. And here's the thing about days. Every day comes with a countdown clock, right? Every day. Those of you who are students, you know this really well. You have to submit a, uh, an assignment on Google Classroom and it's due at midnight. And right there on Google Classroom, you see the countdown clock. It's showing you how many hours and minutes you have left until you have to get that thing in. You know that deadline is coming. And if you're in like online college, that deadline is coming even quicker. Maybe you submitted an assignment by midnight, but then it got marked down for being late. And you're like, what the heck? I turned it in by midnight. But that's when you found out in that school, it's midnight Eastern time. Oh man, you are urgent, but you are not quite urgent enough. That's what Isaiah is trying to get across here. The countdown clock, it's running. The daylight is fading. The opportunity won't always last. So ask yourself this. There's something that God is calling me to do that has a countdown clock attached to it. What is it? There's something he wants me to be decisive and urgent about. What is it? We gotta depend on God and pray, and then we gotta 
respond to God, and act. But then, once we've acted, we got to put the ball back in his court. That's number three. You got to trust God and wait. You got to trust God for the results. David didn't defeat the Philistines overnight. It took time. So we got to wait for God to do his thing. And Jesus gave us a great picture to understand this, the picture of a farmer. Look at what Jesus says in Mark 4. He says, a man scatters seed on the ground and he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade and then the head and then the full grain on the head. And as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. That right there, that's what God wants you to do with your life. Sow some seed and then go to bed. That's his plan for you. Take action and then trust him. Because there's nothing you can do to make the seeds grow. Especially if you lived in ancient Israel where they didn't have sprinkler systems. You would plant the seeds and then you had to wait for the rain to come. You're completely dependent on God. And so family, there's really only two things on your job description. Plant well and sleep well. That's all God wants you to do. Take action and then trust him. Because making the plant grow is God's job. Jesus says the soil produces a crop all by itself. All by itself. The Greek word there is automatic. Automatic. That's how God works. It almost seems like it's happening by itself, automatically. Especially when it's things that are outside of our control. The success of your career and, and the standing that you gain. The success of your investments and the, the profits that you earn. The success of your kids and, and the spiritual growth you see in them. You can plant some seeds, but it's up to God to make the plant grow. And so ask yourself this. There's something that I need to entrust to God's control. What is it? There's something that I've been obsessing over that I have no control over. What is it? Yeah, God calls you to take decisive action, but you gotta then depend on God to deliver the results. And that's what David understood. He depended on God and prayed. He responded to God and acted. And then he trusted God and waited. That is humble strength right there. And it's a reflection of the humble strength strength that was radiated by Christ. Look at what it says in Hebrews 2. You crowned him, you crowned Christ with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. We see him crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for he brought many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus came in extreme humility. He was made lower than the angels, born into one of the poorest families in one of the poorest countries in the world. Joseph and Mary were so poor they could only afford two birds to offer at the temple. Later, they became refugees in Egypt. After that, Jesus became a homeless guy as he wandered around teaching and healing. And then at the end of his life, he was unjustly executed between two common criminals. Jesus lived and died in extreme humility so that he could bring many sons and daughters to glory. So that he could bring you to glory. 
And he did it all by radiating this humble strength. Over the course of all 33 years that he lived on this earth, if you look through the Gospels, you can see Jesus depend on God and pray. He's always getting away to pray, every day. You can see Jesus respond to God and act. He's always teaching and serving and delivering and healing. And then you see Jesus trust God and wait. He knows he should be crowned with glory and honor. That's why Satan comes to him in the wilderness and says, you should be crowned with glory and honor. You are the son of God, right? You don't deserve to be out here in the wilderness starving. If you bow down to me, I'll crown you with glory and honor. But Jesus says, no, I'm just gonna wait for my father to crown me with glory and honor, even though he knows that he's gonna have to go through death and resurrection before he is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus depended on God and he responded to God and he trusted God. And so now he wants to empower you to live the same way. Jesus radiated humble strength so that you can live with humble strength for him. Let's pray together.